0: Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Uh, Today we are continuing a series that we started a few weeks ago called Asking for a Friend. And uh, in this series, you can actually be a part. You can text a question in to, um, you can text asking for, asking in the number four, to the number nine four zero zero zero. When you do that, uh, you can submit your question that uh, you'd like to ask and find out about. <clears throat> and over the last couple weeks, we've asked, uh, uh, talked about the question, is it biblical for women to be pastors? And uh, we talked about the question last week about <clears throat> children, adult children who are away from the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, does... The passage from Proverbs, that says, train up a child in the way they should go when they're old, they or not depart from it. Is that an indication that they're going to come back to the Lord? Is that a promise? So we talked through those questions. Uh, last year, we went through several of the questions as well, and I would encourage you, you can go back and look at our archive and catch up on some of those. <clears throat> Today, we're going to look at a question, <clears throat> excuse me, Ricky's the only one who loves me. <laughs> Nobody else, my whole staff, they all see me choking up here on a chicken wing and nobody's done anything for me. If you're only gonna bless one pastor for Pastor Appreciation, make it Ricky Ingram. <laughs> Today we're gonna to look at a question that um, that I uh, I've I've never preached on this topic before, and part of it is because um, it is not it's just not something that's part of my. It's not in my wheelhouse. It's not something I get excited about necessarily as far as the topic itself. And and as we get into it, you'll understand why I believe. Uh, But we had a number of questions, both in person, people asking me, emails and then texts. uh, And and they were asking some of the same questions. And they all kind of fall into one category. And so here's some of the questions that were asked. Uh, Is the Antichrist alive today? When is the rapture going to happen? Who is the beast in the book of Revelation? Uh, Why isn't the USA mentioned in the book of Revelation? Um, And then I I get questions all the time about, Mel, what do you believe about this end-time event? Do you believe this person could be whatever it might be? And there's a lot of interest in this topic. And so let me start by saying this. Many of you are going to be disappointed with what we talk about today because we're going to unpack some end-time events. We're going to walk through at a high level um, what it's going to look like and, um, and then I'm going to give you some application at the end of the message. I'm going to help you understand some things you can do to be ready for uh, the return of Christ. Um, but what we're not going to do is we're not going to get lost in the minutia of end-time events. Because if you've ever read through the book of Revelation, you understand that there is a lot that can be very confusing and hard to understand and hard to work through. And, uh, and so we're not going to work through all of that stuff today. Um, so... Let me just start with the book of Revelation itself. The book of Revelation, uh, when you think of it, you think about these in time, big cataclysmic events. And the word Revelation is taken from a Greek word, apocalypsis. And apocalypsis is where we get the word apocalypse. And now apocalypse is a word that for many of us we imagine as um, just, well, we use it, apocalyptic Endings in end times like it's a wipeout kind of cataclysmic kind of thing. And and really that's not what it means at all. In fact, in the Greek, apocalypsis means to, to lay bare, make naked. It means to reveal something, to unveil something, to 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 help something be known clearly. And that's really what the meaning of the word apocalypse is. So it doesn't necessarily mean in times. So when I was younger, I used to believe that this meant it was a revelation, it was a revealing of end-time events. This is how the the end of the world is going to happen. But that is not the case at all. What it's really talking about here, revelation, is not a revelation of end-time events. It's really a revelation of the person and the kingship of Jesus Christ, so, when we look at the book of Revelation, it is all about pointing people back to Jesus Christ. Because what we see is from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it is all one unified meta narrative, this one unified story where there aren't different characters that are heroes of the story throughout. Scripture, there is one hero, and that is Jesus Christ. So we see that from beginning to end. What we see is Jesus was born in a manger. He was born as a baby, a very nondescript kind of way, and, and that caught many people by surprise, off guard. They expected the Messiah to be a king arriving in glory. And so what's going to happen is he, he came the first time as a child. When he returns, he's returning as a triumphant king, as Uh, a a king of valor and strength and power and authority. Everything you would imagine. And so what the book of Revelation is, is a revealing of Christ. This is who he really is. Uh, The book of Revelation was written by a man named John. He was uh, stranded on the Isle of Patmos, uh, and he wrote the book of Revelation as a prophetic book. Jesus spoke to him, and he writes this Book, it's a letter that he writes to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And he writes them these letters, and the letters are for their time and their space. So many of the things we get caught up with and hung up with in the book of Revelation, we don't understand, but if we were in that context, we would have. There was a symbolism that we don't understand, but it made a ton of sense for people in the first century church. Um, there were references that, that John made to the Old Testament that we don't understand as readily just looking at it, but the first century church would have understood it. They would have gotten it. References to the book of Daniel or to the book of Ezekiel, they would have understood that very readily. And so there's things that we get lost in today that the first century church would have heard it, they would have read it, and they would have understood it uh, in, in a much simpler way than we do today. So understand this was not written for us in the future to, to be some sort of um, code breaker to help us figure out when the day of uh, the rapture was going to happen, okay? So what we see is in the book of Revelation, seven is a prominent number, it's used over and over and over, and we'll see that again in a minute. Um, but, but I wanna help you with something. If you ever see a book at the bookstore or on Amazon that says, um, crack the revelation code, save your money. <laughs> they didn't crack the code, there is no code In the book of Revelation, I promise you. Uh, If you ever see a book that says uh, 21 reasons that Jesus is going to return in 2021, save your money, okay, because you can buy the book next year when they retitle it 22 reasons Jesus will return in 2022, okay, because they don't know. And this is what you're gonna discover as we talk through this stuff today. There's some things we know and there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't know. And I don't mind telling you when I don't know because the truth is people will say, we know this is what's going to happen. And they don't know. They're speculating, they're, 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 they're trying to guess, they're trying to figure it out. They might be, have a conviction about something. But at the end of the day, we don't know a whole bunch of this stuff. So I'll, I'll tell you what I know and then I'm gonna be honest with you about what I don't know as well. But what I do know is this, The book of Revelation is not supposed to be some encoded message to us to help us figure out the exact day of Jesus' return. And if somebody tells you it is, they're wrong. Uh, In fact, what we see in just a little bit is Jesus actually says, Jesus, okay, says, I don't know when it's going to happen. That's what he says. Nobody knows the day or the hour. Angels don't know, even the Son of Man doesn't know. That's what he says. (laughs) Basically, he says, why are you asking me? I have no idea. And that's the same thing you might hear from me today. Why are you asking me? I have no idea. So if Jesus doesn't know, it's okay for us not to know either. Uh, One of the things we do see this theme throughout the book of Revelation is this idea that tribulation leads to either compromise or faithfulness. That tribulation in our lives, even in our lives today, will either lead to compromise or faithfulness. And this is kind of the theme throughout the book of Revelation, this, this tension, if you're looking at it as a story, this tension in the story that, that kind of drives the plot till the end, will the people of God be faithful? Will, will the followers of Jesus be faithful or will they compromise? Because what happens is, for many of us, we are compromised uh, by conforming to the culture of the world. And we see this in the book of Revelation. We see it in the first century church. We see it even today that that we are compromised by conforming to the image of the world instead of the image of Christ. So this opening section, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, kind of set up the plot and the tension for the rest of the book with this question, will the people of Jesus endure? So we get to Proverbs, um, Proverbs, Revelation chapter 4, and in Revelation chapter 4, uh, it kind of begins, it's the end of the current church era from Jesus till today, and then it begins what we would call the tribulation. And if if you are new to church or you're new to Revelation, the tribulation is a seven year period of time when there is going to be uh, famine, drought, there's going to be uh, disease, there's going to be war, uh, there's going to be all kinds of issues in the world. Uh, Scripture is pretty clear about the fact that there's going to be persecution, that Christians will be martyred for their faith during the seven-year period of time. Um, And we know that during the seven-year period of time, or maybe before the seven-year period of time, that the church will be raptured. Now, the rapture is an interesting word. This word rapture is not used explicitly in Scripture. It's referred to in uh, Thessalonians. Uh, it talks about a gathering together. Um, and we also see Jesus talk about this idea that, uh, that the in times there will be two working in a field, one will be gone and the other will be left standing. And this is where we get the understanding for what the, the rapture is going to be for the church. Now, there are several schools of thought when it comes to the rapture of the church, um, There's one that says the rapture will be pre-tribulation. So at the beginning of the seven-year period of of all kinds of mess in our world, uh, that Jesus will bring the church home, that the dead in Christ will rise that the church, those of us that are alive, will be taken to heaven with Christ during the tribulation. Uh, So that would be a pre-tribulation view. There's also a mid-tribulation view. So there's this idea that in the middle, and we'll talk about the middle of the tribulation in a moment, but in the middle of the tribulation, that would be when Christ would usher Christians to heaven. Those dead in Christ and those of us that are alive will join them. Um, that, That would be the idea. And then there are some that believe that Christians will have to endure the tribulation and because there's scripture that says those who endure to the end shall be saved Uh, and so there's some speculation though. What does that exactly mean? Is it talking about the tribulation? So there's these three predominant schools of thought. I will tell you this. uh, As a church, um, we would say that we are a pre-tribulation in our doctrine. Uh, To be perfectly honest with you, I would not, fight over this at all. None of this stuff. I'm not going to get in an argument with any of you over this. So if you come to me and go, no, it's post-tribulation. I'm going to be like, cool. All right. I'm good with that. Whatever you say, you know, because the reality is whether you're pre or mid or post, the truth is that if we are faithful to Christ, that if our hearts are dedicated to him and we're pursuing him with everything we've got, no matter when it is, we're going to be ready. So I believe in our church's stance would probably be we're pre-tribulation. I would not be shocked if it's mid-tribulation because what we see is the first three and a half years of the tribulation are pretty bad, but then the second three and a half years, it gets even worse. This is when the wrath of God is poured out. What we see in Scripture, in the book of Revelation, are there are seven seals, uh, there's seven trumpets, and seven bowls, and this is when the bowls are poured out in that second half of the tribulation. This is when things get really bad. This is literal Old Testament stuff. This is when the plagues of Egypt will be poured out on the earth uh, during that second three and a half years. Uh, There's several characters that I need to tell you about that maybe you've heard about, Um, in the book of Revelation. The first is um, called the dragon. Uh, This is another name for Satan. So Satan is a prominent figure in the book of Revelation, especially during the tribulation. Uh, He is not going to be a visible figure in in the end times. Uh, It's not like he's going to be like, hey guys, it's me, Satan, who's going to follow me. That's not how it's going to be. Uh, In fact, scripture says that Satan is like an angel of light. He looks great. He looks fantastic. He's He's somebody we would want to follow. Satan will have a figurehead um, called the Antichrist. And the Antichrist will be the one who's kind of leading the charge, leading the way. I've had many questions about this. Pastor Mel, who's the Antichrist? Is the Antichrist alive today? That's one of the questions that got sent in. To the question, is the Antichrist alive today? My answer is, I don't know. You're going to see a pattern here. I don't know if the Antichrist is alive today. And I know what your argument might be. I'm pretty sure he is. I think I worked for him one time, right? (laughs) I might have dated her in high school. I'm pretty sure the Antichrist is alive and well. So we don't know if the Antichrist is alive. We have no idea. Um, I've had questions. Who is the Antichrist? Most recently, I don't know if you saw this, uh, there's a lot of people speculating that Bill Gates was the Antichrist. Did you see this recently? He must be the Antichrist. This is the deal. If you think they're the Antichrist, they're probably not the Antichrist, okay? Uh, That's your first tip. I've also, a few years ago, heard a rumor that that Oprah Winfrey might be the Antichrist. I think we're getting closer to it now. (laughs) Right, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I don't know if you, you, some of you, It's funny that I'm going to say it this way. Uh, There's some college students here and some teenagers who don't remember Ronald Reagan's presidency. I do remember Ronald Reagan's presidency. And there were people who thought Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist because his first, middle, and last name had six letters in each, 666. Surely he's the Antichrist. Um, But this is the thing. This is what we know about the Antichrist. The Antichrist will be somebody who's so universally accepted and loved that no one will believe that he's the Antichrist until it's too late. Because what happens is, um, what we see in Scripture, Jesus describes what's going to happen uh, right in the middle of the tribulation. Uh, this, the middle of this three and a half years, uh, we see that the Antichrist is going to show up, uh, and and something's going to happen in the temple in Jerusalem, and it's going to be the Abomination of Desolation is what it's called. And the Abomination of Desolation is is there's speculation here, but probably what's going to happen is the Antichrist is going to offer sacrifice and uh, desecrate the temple, basically. Um, so there's speculation that he might offer a, a, a sacrifice of a pig in the temple, which would uh, be counter to Jewish law and would be, desecrate the holy place. And what Jesus says in Matthew 24 is, hey, if you are alive, if you are a believer uh, at this time, because what we believe is that the, there's an excellent chance the church has been raptured, but people will still be able to be saved after this. Um, and so the church has been raptured. But what Jesus says, if you are a believer and you're around when this happens, he says you need to run. Because this is a sign that it's about to get real bad. So, this is one of the reasons I believe that, that at the very least there will be a mid tribulation rapture of the church. Because I think by then, when God's wrath is poured out, I think the church will be taken at that point. So, we see the dragon, we see the Antichrist, <clears throat> we see there are two figures called the beast. Uh, if Dr. Seuss was writing the book of Revelation, he would call it beast one and beast two. Um, I just thought that was funny to imagine. I do not want beast one or beast two. Anyway, so you have beast one and beast two. Beast one <clears throat> represents uh, military power. <clears throat> this is probably um, someone that we're not expecting, that we're not seeing. What you see if you go back through history, um, when the book of of Revelation was written, <clears throat> Rome was the dominant power at the time. So it was easy for the people to believe that Rome must be the beast. Uh, they were under persecution. Um, the, the church was, was dealing with a lot. And so it was easy in their context to go, ah, it's Rome. But if you would have gone back a little further, they would have said, oh, it's Persia. Oh, it's Babylon. Oh, it's whoever the modern equivalent would have been. So Uh, We don't know who the beast is, but what we do know is they're going to be a a mighty military force, and they will take ground by force. We also see beast two, and beast two is going to lead through uh, financial means. So these two beasts together are going to help usher in the the mark of the beast. Now, when I was a kid, this used to freak me out. Does anybody remember there was a movie, like a Christian movie years ago? Made in the 70s, called The Thief in the Night. Does anybody remember these movies? Oh, they were horrible. (laughs) Like... We would watch him. I think my preacher at the church I grew up at, I think when he didn't have a sermon prepped, we would watch that. Like He was like, oh, it's kind of like Veggie Tales for adults kind of. And he would put the movie on and we'd watch this. And in the movie, uh, it's talking about end time events, but it's set in the 70s. And it would be like (laughs) this guy with this terrible big mustache, long pork chop sideburns, you know, his hair's feathered. He's wearing the big lapel. And really, he would probably fit in culturally with the way people dress now, now that I think about it. Anyway, he's got these huge pants and he would pull up in his Trans Am and he'd get out and the music, like, bow, tickle, bow, bow, you know, and be like, oh, it's the Antichrist. Like, that's what I imagined it would look like when I was a kid. That is not what it's going to look like, okay? Um, when they usher in the Mark of the Beast, uh, what we see is uh, there's this indication that there's going to be a mark on your forehead or on your hand that will be an indication of your allegiance. Um, and 666 is the number of the beast. There's a couple numbers behind, a uh, reason behind that. We won't get into that today. But basically, it was the idea that, that everyone would have to take the mark. What we see in scripture is if you don't take the mark, there will be no buying or selling. Um, and so there's a lot of things we could speculate on what that will look like for us. It's easy for us today to go, oh, well, um, what if instead of paying with your iPhone for stuff, you could just scan your hand. What if you had a chip in your hand that had your banking information and instead of having to pull out money or cash or it's, it's sanitary, it's more secure, it's, you just swipe your hand and it's, wouldn't that be convenient? Wouldn't it be convenient if you had all your, your health information on a chip in your hand so that that way you don't have to worry about them transferring the files over and all those kind of things and wait times. You could just scan your hand and they got your, your information, all that stuff. And it seems like it would make a lot of sense and it's very convenient. But for us, that's when we go, oh, wait a second. So when you see stuff like that on the news and you kind of go, oh, that sounds weird and I'm not sure about that, that could be part of it. At the end of the day, though, I'm less concerned about that, the actual function of what it looks like, because what we see is, um, this, is this is a direct affront to uh, Jewish faith, um, There's a prayer in Jewish faith called the Shema. And the Shema is a prayer that most devout Jews pray morning and night. And the Shema is a prayer of devotion. It's a prayer of um, allegiance where they will pray, God, you are the one true God. Um, You have my life. This is basically what they're praying. And what they do is they will mark their forehead and their hand with the Shema. And the reason they do that is they're saying, God, I am fully aligned with you in every way. You are my God. I want you to be God over everything I think. So I'm going to mark my head and everything I do. So everything I think about, everything I do is yours, and I'm devoted to you in these ways. And so what we see is the mark of the beast is literally anti-Shema. It's literally the Antichrist, Satan, saying, no, 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 you're not aligned with God, you're aligned with me. I am Lord. I am the one who controls your, your thoughts and your actions. So it's not just simply about what's it gonna look like, chip in your hand, chip in your forehead, whatever it is. There's something deeper to it than just simply saying um, there's a mark. So who's the beast? We don't know. Lots of different ideas. I mentioned that earlier. Um, so sorry again. I don't know who the beast is. Um, after this so after the tribulation, the seven years of just chaos on planet Earth, and by the way, I don't believe we're in the first three years, three and a half years of the tribulation. I've had some people say, do you think? And I do not believe that. So I think it's going to be, we will know when we're in it. And I don't think we're there yet. Um, after the seven years of tribulation, it culminates with the battle of Armageddon, um, So, this is a place, this is an actual place on the northern, there's a northern plain north of, in the northern part of Israel. That's the the Megiddo. And there's an actual military base there. This is the location of many Jewish battles throughout history. Um, And so, this is where it was said to take place, where where it will take place. Now, there is some discussion about whether it'll be a physical, literal battle between the forces of heaven and the forces of darkness. Um, Will they actually, literally, set down and fight or is this a metaphor? Now, I could make a case for both pretty easily. I believe that it could be a metaphor because um, the the reality is we we think Satan is tough and he is tough compared to me, but he's not tough compared to God. God is the creator, Satan is uh, created. Um, when, When Satan fell from heaven, A third of the angels fell with him. That means a third of heaven was gone, but two thirds remained. There's still twice as many for us as there are against us. So at at the battle of Armageddon, is it gonna be a real battle? I don't know that it would be anyway. So it could just be a metaphor talking about how God is going to put an end to evil in our day, that, that this will be the culminating moment where, where evil is set aside in this moment. Um, you can see more of this in Revelation chapter 19. It talks a little bit about this. At the end of the battle of Armageddon, Satan is going to be bound up for 1,000 years. So Satan and his cronies will be bound up for 1,000 years. This ushers in the 1,000 year millennial reign of Jesus Christ, that he will be the king uh, on earth for us and it'll be a, a time of peace going to be a time of no war, it'll be a time of righteousness. Um, and this is where I would interject here. I've had some people say, why isn't the United States mentioned in the book of Revelation? And uh, there's, well, let me back up. If, if you read scripture, you read the Bible, but you didn't know world history, you would think that Israel was possibly one of the most important nations geopolitically in the world. but But from a historic perspective, Israel is a footnote. Um, Israel is important spiritually, but geopolitically it is not as important or valuable. Um, now it's important for the United States, uh, Mideast, um, you know, ally, all those kind of things, but, but in the grand scheme of history, Israel is, is kind of a speck. So let's flip that though. So they have high spiritual value, low geopolitical value. In the United States, um, we have very high geopolitical value, and it's a great possibility that when it comes to end time events, we have very little spiritual value. That, that because the, of the spiritual things that are going on in the world, the United States just might not be a factor in end time events, and that's why. So yes, maybe we'll play a part of some kind, but it seems to be that, that we just aren't that big an issue. Um, and again, part of that comes from the perspective of the writers um, and what they're seeing and how they're seeing it. So with that said, um, again, I wanna refer back to my previous answer, I don't know. That's the long way of saying, it. I'm not sure. But that's my theory on that. So the millennial reign of Christ happens at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. Uh, Satan is released in his cronies for, for one last, you know, at the end of a, a horror movie when like, the, the bad guy's dead. Oh. And they're like, whew, we just got him, thank goodness. And then all of a sudden he comes back for one more like, ah, er, right, and they're like, ah, and you kill him one final time. Did anybody know that part of the movie? And you know it's coming, but it still gets you anyway. This is what happens. Jesus, God releases Satan for one final gasp. God puts him in his place one final time. And this is where we see the resurrection of all humanity. So um, at at the rapture, either at the beginning of the tribulation or the middle of the tribulation, Uh, the dead in Christ rise, and those that are alive in Christ join with them. We we meet Christ in the air, okay? So we meet him in the air, we are with him at that point. We reign with Christ in the the thousand-year millennial reign on earth, and then what we see at the end of that, when Satan is is one final judgment, the, the dead who are not in Christ are resurrected at that point. So every human who ever lived and was not in Christ, is judged at that point. And this is called the great white throne of judgment. And this is where all people are judged according to their works. So no matter what they do, there's a judgment for them. But this is the thing. Anyone, no matter how good or moral or kind they were, if their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, because there's two books here, if your name is not written in the other book, it does not matter, you inherit eternal punishment. And there's a place in the lake of fire for people who do not submit their hearts to Christ. And I've talked to people before, how could a loving God send someone to hell? And I would say to you, a loving God doesn't send someone to hell. He, he, He weeps over people who end up in hell. His heart is broken over people who end up in hell. It is our decisions who lead us to hell. It's our willing disobedience to who God is and what he wants for our lives that we, we go to hell literally over, over the, broken, um, the broken state of Jesus Christ, over the, the cross. That's what takes us to hell. So people will end up in hell after that final judgment. At that point, um, all things are made new and there's a new heaven and new earth. Literally what God does, he said, the old one is broken. I'm going to break it. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm starting all over with a new one. He said, I'm not just going to restore the earth. I'm going to make something totally new out of it. And that's where we spend the rest of eternity with Christ. Now, I've had people say, what is heaven going to be like? And I think we get hung up on pearly gates and streets of gold and all those kind of things. At the end of the day, I don't think we're going to care about any of that stuff. Um, I think being in the the physical manifest presence of God is going to be so overwhelming, we won't care about anything else. Because I've had people say, are my pets going to be with me in heaven? You probably don't want me to answer that one. I, I don't know for sure. Yeah, I'll just leave it there. I want to make you happy. Um, am I going to, am I spouse, am I going to be able to live with my spouse in our mansion in heaven? I'll be honest with you, you won't care at that point. We're all going to have glorified bodies. So you'll look something like this, I'm sure. So, just kidding. Just kidding. Sorry. Couldn't help it. So we'll all have glorified bodies. We'll all be perfect. No sickness, no disease, no anything. And I don't think we're gonna worry about where is my wife at at that point because we're gonna be so enraptured, literally, by the presence of God, being in the physical presence of God. Now, this is a crude way to describe it. This is the way I would describe it, though. Imagine the greatest feeling you've ever had in your life. Think about it for a second. What is the greatest feeling you've ever experienced? Maybe it was when your child was born. And they wrapped their hand around your finger for the first time. You thought, what in the world is going on? Like, wow, this is the best. Maybe it was the day you got married, and you thought, I can't believe I could spend the rest of my life with my best friend. Maybe, Maybe it was some other experience you experienced. Maybe it was you reunited with a family member. I don't know what it is, but think about that moment. And that feeling was fleeting, wasn't it? Man, it felt great in that moment. It was cool, it was exciting, whatever it was. But imagine if that's what you experience forever, for all eternity. That feeling of excitement and enthusiasm and passion and all those things wrapped up into one that's what you feel when you're in the physical manifest presence of God. That's heaven, that's what we get to experience. So that question, will, will those who are in Christ endure to the end? That's our reward. That's what, what the overcomers will receive is, is that moment with God. So for us, I think it's exciting to think about, yes, being with our friends and family and loved ones who have gone before us, obviously, but man, being in the presence of God being who we actually are, not just these crude, fleshly beings bound up in this world. Seeing Jesus Christ, the, the conquering king, enthroned forever. That's exciting for me. So what do we do? What, is, what does that mean for us? Well, a couple things. I got bad news for you. That was my introduction to this message. I'm just kidding. Okay. Three things I'll tell you that we need to do to be ready for the return of Christ. The first is this love sacrificially. Love sacrificially. There's only one passage from the book of Revelation I'm gonna read to you today, and it's this one. Revelation chapter five, verse one. This is John who who wrote the book of Revelation. He's getting this vision, and in the vision he is in the throne room of heaven. And it says, then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who is sitting on the throne. He sees God holding a scroll in his right hand. It says, there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals of the scroll and open it. But no one in heaven or on on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Verse 4 says, then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So he's weeping and he hears one of the 24 elders and we're not going to get into the 24 elders today. One of the 24 elders says, no, 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 stop weeping. Look, look, it's It's the Lion of Judah. It's the Son of David. And these are names to describe the Messiah. And these are manly, masculine names because the Lion of Judah, it projects power and authority. And the the Son of David, it projects this conquering hero, that this is who David was, and he's of the lineage of David. And so he hears this, and then listen to verse 6. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes would represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. So so I want to help you with this part. Don't worry about all the superfluous stuff here. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we get sidetracked on. The 24 elders, the four living beings, the seven horns and seven eyes. What does it all mean? We could get into that. We're not going to get into that because that's not the stuff that matters in this passage. What matters in this passage is verse 6. Then I saw a lamb that looked like it had been slaughtered. So this is what he hears. He hears the the, the elders say, look, it is the Lion of Judah. It is the son of David. It is this conquering hero. And then he looks and what he sees is not what was described to him. What he sees is a lamb that looks like it was slain. Now, you're imagining this sweet little lamb, but a lamb that was slain would be a mess. This bloody lamb. And he looks and he sees this lamb. And what he realizes in this moment is we don't overcome through power and authority, through strength. We overcome through sacrificial love. Jesus won the day because he was willing to lay down his life for people he loved. He loved sacrificially. What we see through the timeline in the book of Revelation, is there will be people who come to Christ even after the church is raptured off of planet Earth. And the reason they come to Christ is they see what the martyrs do. They see people lay down their lives sacrificially for what they believe and for people they love. And people respond to that. They see sacrificial love, and their hearts cry out and they go, I want that. And I'm telling you today, the same is true for you right here, right now. People are longing for sacrificial love. If you've got a broken marriage, that it feels like it's failing, you can't muscle your way through it? Do you know how you fix it? Love sacrificially. You love sacrificially even when you don't feel like it, even when they don't deserve it. You love sacrificially. you know why we do that? Because that's what Jesus did for us. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husbands, love your wives sacrificially like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. We love sacrificially our boss who we think is trying to kill us and hates our guts. We love them sacrificially. Is that easy? No. That's why it's sacrificial. What won the day for Christ is what wins the day for us. What makes the difference in the world we live in. We love sacrificially. Number two, we love consistently. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 Verses 1 and 2. By the way, I mentioned Matthew 24. Jesus talks about end times in Matthew 24. And there's a passage I was going to read to you. I'm not going to read it to you just for the sake of time today. If you want to read more about what Jesus said about that, look at Matthew 24. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes to the Thessaloniki church, and he says, Now concerning how and when all this will happen, he's talking about the end time events. Dear brothers and sisters, we do not really need to write you. So he's saying, I don't need to tell you everything that's going to happen. Listen to this, verse 2. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Nobody wants to be robbed. If I told you, hey, I can't tell you how I know this, but I know for sure you're going to be robbed tonight, 2.30 a.m. There's going to be a perpetrator comes into your house and steals your stuff. You wouldn't be like, thanks for the heads up. I'll make sure I uh, take a sleeping pill before I go to bed. I wanna make sure I rest well while they're robbing us, right? No, you'd be like, I'm ready. You'd go Kevin McAllister on them, right? <laughs> you'd be home alone up in that place. <laughs> you might get your friends, Mr. Smith and Mr. Weston, to join you while you're waiting for the thief to come to your house that night, right? I know my audience, a bunch of Western Pennsylvania here. Half of you are carrying it right now. I'm not a fool, I know that. You'd be ready for that joker, wouldn't you? They'd walk in, you'd have a little surprise for them. Say hello to my little friend, right? You'd be ready. But do you know what happens? Most of us go, I'm not going to get robbed. We sleep at night. What happens? We're not ready for someone to break into our house. We're not ready for the thief to come. We're not expecting, it's not going to happen to us. It couldn't happen to us. When I was in college, my mom and dad, they owned a a house near the school that I went to. And it was in Texas, about four hours away from where my parents lived. And the stipulation was, you can live in this house, but you have to keep it clean. Fair enough, single male college student. Of course I'm gonna keep it clean. It'll be spotless all the time, right? As all college students are good housekeepers. Inevitably, what would happen more than once, I lived on this little cul-de-sac, there were a few other houses, no other houses near us, our house backed up to this this cornfield, and the road coming to our house was through this cornfield, literally, you could see like a mile, mile and a half up the road, and so nothing but cornfield road, and there were more than one time that I'd be standing on the back porch or standing in the kitchen looking out the back window, and off in the distance, I would see a vehicle, oh, who's coming up the road? And I would recognize with fear and horror (laughs) that my dad's truck was coming up the road. And I knew in that moment, I've got about three minutes until he makes it into this house. I have got to get this house clean in three minutes. (laughs) And I looked like there was CGI working on me, like I was running so fast and putting stuff up, cramming things under the couch and in the wherever I needed to put it to make sure that house was clean. Do you know what would have been better for me? If I had kept the house clean consistently instead of rushing in this moment to try to fix what I should have been doing earlier. And what Paul is telling the Thessaloniki church is hey, you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know when the the thief is going to show up. You don't know when Christ is coming. So why don't you just be consistent? Why don't you love consistently instead of when it's easy, when it's comfortable? Why don't you love consistently? Not just sacrificially, but consistently, over and over and over again. Because you do not know when the time of Christ is. So what Paul is telling the church is, be ready no matter when it might be. So we love sacrificially, we love consistently, the last thing is this, we love urgently. In Romans chapter 13, Paul was talking to the Roman church about how we get along and how we love each other as the church and he's imploring them to do that, and he says this in Romans 13:11: "This is all the more urgent for you know how late it is." And he's talking about the return of Christ. He says, "Time is running out. Wake up for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed." He's saying the return of Christ is going to happen sooner than you expect it to happen. He says, the night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Some of you have worked pipelines or coal mines. You work dirty jobs and you come home at the end of the day and you're filthy and your your spouse goes, ah, you're you're not coming in here like that, right? No, 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 you're not messing up my house with that. You go change in the basement. Right? It's a walk of shame. You got to go through the cellar doors, clunk, 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 right? Whatever it is, you're changing down there. Why? Because your spouse says, You're not messing up my house with that messy clothes. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, Don't mess up the house of God with your dirty clothes. Don't come in the house of God living in your filth, thinking it's okay to just wear the stuff in. He's saying, no, no, strip it off. Take it off just like you would a dirty shirt. You take it off. You strip those things away. He says, because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, immoral living, quarreling, and jealousy. Let me read this to you again. I wanna make sure we get it. We must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties. I don't know if you guys know, we got a a university in our town. Is anybody familiar with that, IUP? They're known to have some parties from time to time. Is anybody aware of that? At least a couple times a year. They have some wild parties. And drunkenness. Again, I'll refer back to my previous message on IEP. <laughs> or in sexual promiscuity. Do we see a, a trend going here? And immoral living. And a lot of us right now are like, yeah, those IEP students can't believe they do that stuff. Did you know adults do this stuff too? Wild parties aren't just reserved for 20-year-olds. Did you know that? Sexual immorality is not reserved for 20-year-olds. Coeds on campus. Let's take this a step further, and it says it, it doesn't in the list there. It goes on to say, or in quarrelling and jealousy. You thought this was going to be just the IUP students. You are wrong. It is all of us. You you might be great on a few of these, but there's a couple of these that Paul got you. Well, I, I'm not sexually immoral. No, but but you trash people when you talk about them behind their back. You gossip. You you don't mind living jealously. You look at people's stuff on social media and you're like, they don't deserve that. I deserve a house like that. That doesn't sound like the heart of Christ to me at all. And what Paul says is, we strip that stuff off. We don't bring that in the house. And he goes on to say in verse 14, instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about the ways to indulge your evil desires. Remember what he said in the very first verse here. This is all the more urgent because we know that the days are short. We know that our salvation is nearer now than when we began. He says it's important that we live urgently, that we love urgency, love the people around you urgently because we're running out of time. When I was a kid, I used to think that this was about me, that I've got I've to love God urgently because He could come back at any moment. And I, I was living with this fear that if I was like, if I had a bad thought when Jesus returned, I would miss the rapture. I've told you the story before. I didn't tell this in the earlier services. Um, When when I was a kid, I would walk home from school, and my mom was always home when I would get home from school. But there were a couple times I would get home and my mom was not home for some reason. Freaked me out. Because my first thought is, my mom got raptured and I missed it! (laughs) No! Literally, I would go through the house looking for my mom. Like, (gasps) Like, oh my gosh, right? This isn't something that happened a time or two. This was how I lived my life as a, as a kid growing up in a Pentecostal church. Uh, I was scared about missing the rapture. And, and what we need to understand is we need to live with an urgency. It's not just about us. It's about the people around you. It's fun because this weekend we had a whole bunch of people who came to church here because somebody they love was being baptized. And what that indicates is influence, There there was a girl in our previous service, I bet she had 40 people here for her baptism. That tells me that there's influence there. And when we love urgently, it's not just about us, it's about the people around us who are transformed and changed by the love of Christ. It's understanding that it's not just about me getting to heaven, it's about them understanding that there's a better way, that there is an end, that there is a heaven and there's a hell. These things are real. My life has been changed not just because I'm kind and nice and moral, but I've been changed because Jesus Christ is alive in me. When we live urgency and, and urgently and love urgently, it makes a difference in the people we're around as well. There's a, uh, a quote from C.S. Lewis that I want to read to you. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, one of the most accomplished Christian writers of all time. Um, And and this is what he said. He says, When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right. But what is the good of saying you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else comes crashing in? This time it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will either strike irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late to choose your side. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realize it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. See, when we talk about this stuff today, you might have some mixed emotions. Maybe you're a little nervous. Maybe you have some anxiety. What's this gonna look like? But if you are struck with a feeling of of terror, of fear, that might be the Holy Spirit trying to draw you. That might be the Holy Spirit trying to show you, hey, something needs to change. Because at the end of the day, this message today should bring great comfort to believers. It should bring comfort to us knowing that we get to spend eternity with Jesus Christ. We get to spend eternity in heaven with him. But maybe you're here today and you're a little nervous. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling a little anxiety because you know you've got friends and loved ones who are not Christians. They have not surrendered their lives to Christ. They've never made him Lord. I wanna challenge you, live urgently. Love urgently. Love consistently. Love sacrificially for them. If you're here today and you've never made Jesus' Lord of your life, I believe today's your day. why don't you bow your head and close your eyes. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for loving us so well and loving us so much. I pray today, God, um, unconventional message, a little different than we normally do, but God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would still minister and speak and draw people and draw lives to you. I pray for those that are here today that, that know you and are in relationship with you. God, I pray that you would help them have an urgency about their faith that they've never had before. I pray that they would share their faith with people they come into contact with, talk about spiritual things with people at their workplace, in their homes, wherever they may be. I pray that we would understand that the day of our salvation is nearer now than when we began. So God, I pray that you would help us love urgently today. God, I pray for those that are here that don't know you, that aren't in a relationship with you. Let today be the day that all of heaven parties has a celebration because of what happens here, because of people whose lives are made different by your spirit. So Lord, I pray, change us, make us different. have your way with us with nobody looking around with your head bowed and your eyes closed if you're here today and you'd say to me, Mel, you know what I'm not really serving God I'm not in a relationship with Jesus and I know I need to be and the reality is I'm scared about what you talked about today it makes me nervous and I, I want to choose today I want to I want to Know right now that I'm right with Christ, that I'm gonna spend eternity in heaven with him. If that's you, I'm gonna ask you just to slip your hand up real high where I can see it, and you can put it right back down. So if you'd say to me, Mel, that's me, pray for me. Yeah, I see you on my right. I see you in the center section, thank you. A couple of hands. Who else would say, Mel, that's me, pray for me. I wanna make sure I'm right with God. I wanna make Jesus Lord of my life. I wanna choose today. Yeah, thank you. I see you on my left. Praise God. Just a few more seconds. Anyone else want to join these? Okay. The word of God tells us in the book of Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So what I want to ask everyone in this place to do is say this simple prayer with me. I want you to say it with your mouth, out loud, but I want you to pray it from the center of your being, from the core of who you are. And if you're watching online, I'd love for you to join us in this prayer. So everybody, pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you gave your son to pay the price for my sins on the cross. From this day forward, my life, is yours use it for your glory and help me to love like you do help me never go back to my old ways or life but help me live for you in jesus name amen amen come on can we give god a round of applause today Listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, the scripture tells us that you're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So we would love to help you take the next step in your faith journey. If you're here in the room and you prayed that with us, you can uh, fill out the card that's in the seat back in front of you, or if you'd like, you can simply text the word different to the number 94,000. If you're watching online and you made that decision today, you can let one of your hosts know there, or you can simply text the word different to 94,000. We're gonna reach out to you, and we're gonna get you resources. Uh, we're gonna help you find a life-giving church in your area if you're watching online that you can begin to grow in your faith and get connected with. So thank you for worshiping with us and connecting with us online today. Guys, I tell you often, I hope you know it. I love you more than you know, and I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day.